Hey, this is Jay Watts from Merely Human Ministry. Welcome to Human Things 2.0, Season 2, Episode 2. All right. Welcome back. So for Episode 2, I have a, we have the, uh, an interview today with, I'm very excited about this interview. It's with uh, Dr. Ben Mitchell. Uh, he holds a Graves Chair of Moral Philosophy at Union University in Tennessee, where he also previously served as the Provost and Vice President of Academic Affairs. Uh, he serves as the Editor of Ethics and Medicine, an international journal of bioethics, as a Senior Editor of Renewing Minds, a journal of faith, learning, and culture. Uh, this, this is a man who loves Christ and knows an awful lot about what I've asked him to come and talk about. And I reached out to him and asked him if he would talk to us about AI and he was gracious to come and talk about AI and to the merge, the, the both the threats and benefits that technology like that, superintelligence technology has to do for humanity and against humanity. He's a smart man. And I, I, I'll, I'll mention this again later when he comes and joins us, but I want to give specifics. I'd heard him talk about physician-assisted suicide a couple of years ago, many years ago now, I think it was. And during his talk, at the same time, I think it was actually that same week, I had given a talk on physician-assisted suicide at another event. And so I'd, so I'd heard my, I heard myself, obviously, and I knew what I had prepared and how I had presented it. And then I went and heard him. And, and here's what struck me about him, uh, that we operate from the, the same platform of ideas and beliefs about the nature of humanity, the image bearers of God, and all of those. Uh, but he, there was also this, this palpable love of Christ in his talk that, that impressed me and it was, it, and as he evaluated information, he was unapologetic and not, and not that I am, but that his passionate defense of human life through a Christian perspective was, was refreshing. There was no part of him that was trying to act as if he were a neutral party. He had an educated, reasonable, sophisticated view of our responsibilities and duties to people at the time that they're dying about our responsibility and duties to the world as people while we're dying. And at the same time, he shared those through the heart of a man who genuinely loves Christ. And here's the other thing that's important to me, who hates sin. And those two things were a big deal for me. And so I just, sometimes in this world, you meet people, you hear them talk, you know they're smart people, but you don't get the impression they're good people. I've had a very few interactions with Ben Mitchell but every time I had an uh, interaction with him, I walked away from it thinking this is a smart man and this is a good man, or at least a man for whom being good is, is important. And so I've, I'm so excited he's going to be joining us today. I want to keep this intro shorter because he and I will have a long and substantial conversation about things like AI and transhumanism and, and antinatalist view of human beings and all of those things. But before we get there, I, I do want to address... One thing that I found interesting recently, I mean, I, I mentioned this, I think, last time when we had Seth on the show, that I go online before we do these, and I try to find people offering arguments against the pro-life view that I can address on the show. And the problem is, on the internet right now, the arguments that people are offering against the pro-life view are absolutely, totally garbage. There isn't anything even meaningful to interact with. And a lot of it's very hateful and personal. I mean, they say things like, uh, you know, you're going to kill women. By doing this, you're assuring that women will die. Uh, and that uh, trying to limit abortion is going to create an environment where women will die. 
And I, we can, you can point to the historical evidence that demonstrates that as we produced uh, more efficient ways of performing abortions, which we can talk about in a second here, what that means, the more efficient way of killing or destroying another human life. And as we got antibiotics and as we, we progressed in medical scientific knowledge, as embryology uh, uh, advances, as our understanding of what's going on inside a woman advances, all of these things, uh, the number of women dying from illegal abortions just plummeted long before uh, it was made legal. Uh, and so as a matter of fact, if you look at the number of women who died the year it was illegal and then the year afterwards, they're actually pretty comparable. There isn't a big dramatic change. Uh, and But the, that's not the problem. And the problem is that you're asking for the, the right to destroy another innocent human life or just let's just leave it for the moment as a life. You're actually for the right to destroy a human life because you find their existence uh, a problem. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? You find their existence inconvenient. That is exactly the word I was looking for. Thank you. Sometimes we forget basic words here when you get a microphone in your face. They are inconvenient and you want the right to destroy them because of that inconvenience. And, and then you want to demand that you be able to destroy human life in the safest manner possible. I can understand the desire for people to be safe while destroying human life because you want the freedom to destroy it without harming yourself. But I do not understand why society is obligated or required or duty bound in any way to assist you in that. It has not been our practice once determining something as immoral to do our best to help people to do immoral things in the safest way possible. Now, there are cases where we may do that. I remember needle exchange programs when I was younger, uh, when they were HIV was spreading and AIDS was spreading and it had been determined that intravenous drug use was a problem. Then there was a moment where we said, look, you are going to do these drugs. So we are going to help you do it in a way that hopefully doesn't get you infected with HIV. But that there's a protective element there and we're helping you do something immoral. So I understand that. But the problem is that's a sort of libertarian view or a collective view of the society that is better for society, that fewer people have AIDS than it is that more people have AIDS. And so if we can keep the number of people who have AIDS and are transmitting HIV from uh, through unprotected sex uh, down lower by giving people who are going to use drugs the clean needles that will help them keep them from getting sick, then, then there may be some pragmatic reasons for doing that. But when you do drugs, you are not intentionally killing someone else. You are doing something to yourself. It's self-harm. And it is, it, it's, there's obviously community and cultural harm. If you've ever loved somebody who's a drug addict, you know that fully well, that when they harm themselves, they harm you as well. But the issue there is not the same or analogous to the intentional destruction of an innocent human life. If we made it easier for you to do self-harm through drug use, but at the same time, we made it safer for the world by trying to keep the number of people infected by HIV low by helping you to do this with clean needles. We're not making you do that. We're not encouraging you to do it. We're just saying, if you insist on doing this, let's try to keep everybody safer. But that's not what's being asked for. What you're asking for here is for you to be safe, destroying another human life. And that's not our practice in that. We don't make it easier to destroy other human beings for anybody out there that wants to do it, nor do we do, for the most part, a practice in letting you do dangerous things uh, that will put other people at risk. 
unnecessarily so that you can pursue whatever it is that you want to pursue. That's not the way the law works. That's not the way our community works. So when people say someone's going to die, we say, well, if we make abortion legal just to protect you so that you can destroy other human lives, I guarantee people are going to die. Every human being that you destroy through the practice of abortion is going to die. Every abortion is the successful destruction of another human being. Every successful abortion is the destruction of another human life. So it's not commonly the practice of our community to make it easier for you to do a bad thing in a safer way. And if we're ever going to do that, and if you want to point to something like needle exchanges for HIV, it has to be in extreme circumstances where number one, the harm is mostly self-harm, and number two, the benefits to the rest of the community is not just to keep you, the individual, from having HIV. It was to keep HIV at a level where it would not be contaminating the entire culture because we couldn't control who was getting it and how they were active and who they were infecting. So this is different when we're talking about doing something to help someone do something that we think is immoral. That's the kind of complaints that I'm hearing about all the, and, and things like, you know, uh, the abortion drug is safer than Tylenol. Like, first of all, safer home. Uh, you know, Tylenol, last I checked, doesn't destroy life. Uh, it, you know, it, whether, how, whether it's effective or not is one thing, whether it's the side effects that come with it as far as the, the organ damage that can be done from using too much Tylenol is a good thing, a trade-off versus the benefits that you're getting for it. Uh, who ought to take it and when? These are all questions that we could ask. But to say Tylenol is 14 times safer or that RU486 or the, the abortion protocol, medical protocol, 14 times safer than Tylenol is ridiculous on its face. The abortion protocol is intentionally designed to destroy and end life. Tylenol is not. The comparison on its face is ridiculous. I appreciate, by the way, and I will, I will make sure there's links to this particular episode that, that, to articles that debunk the idea that it is 14 times safer than Tylenol. But the idea that I need to engage with that at all to me is a category mistake or getting out of the area we're arguing. I'm not saying that you shouldn't take RU486 because it's not safe. I'm saying you shouldn't take RU486 because it destroys human life. And to then go make some fallacious Tylenol comparison as if they were somehow the same thing is idiotic. It doesn't really matter to me if you can become so efficient at destroying other human beings that it represents zero risk to the person within whom that human life resides. It's great in the sense that I want human beings to continue to live and to thrive. And I don't ever want anybody to get sick. I don't want anybody to get, have to die for making a bad decision. But you can't make abortion legitimate by making it safer for the woman seeking an abortion. Because what makes abortion wrong is it's the intentional destruction of a human life. It's the unjust destruction of a human life. What makes abortion wrong isn't that the abortion protocol drugs are dangerous. What makes abortion wrong isn't that surgical abortion is dangerous. What makes abortion wrong isn't that women regret abortions. Those are things that are wrong with abortion, but it's not why abortion is wrong. Abortion is wrong because it intentionally destroys an innocent human life. And, and it's difficult to get too excited about discussing objections of that nature. Uh, so I, I'm still going to keep looking and I'm asking pro-choice friends to submit their 
their objections to the pro-life view to me. Uh, but as long as they they don't rise to a higher quality when I find them online, I'm really not particularly interested in engaging those. I will, on an episode coming up, revisit Bali Autonomy. I'm going to go back, and, and we started off at an overview of it. Now we're going to get into more specifics about it on an upcoming episode, because that is an interesting argument for the pro-choice side. I think it's deeply flawed, but it is it is at least interesting. It holds that as, as something to be particularly thoughtful, I guess. Uh, so before we bring uh, Dr. Mitchell on, I do want to cover one more thing, and that is this idea that we're going to be discussing today in order to set the grounds for that conversation, we have to recognize that there are, I did a, a, a tour of colleges in um, Alabama last fall. And, and the things we talked about, there's different ways to understand what it means to be a human being. And one of the ways to understand what it means to be a human being is to understand yourself as simply a physical being that you are essentially nothing more than a biological organism. And in that worldview, which we would call a materialistic, naturalistic worldview, the idea that things like spirits or supernaturalism or God or, or angels or demons or, or anything like if it's not atoms colliding into atoms, then it doesn't fit into my view of the universe. So that materialistic, naturalistic view of human beings, biological organism, all we are, meat machines. Well, in that view the mind is actually something that doesn't fit uh, because mindedness, uh, the idea that I read, think, see the world around me and then make decisions based on the information I've given, that, that would call into question something that's not material. You have a brain, but you don't have a mind in that view. And the brain is nothing but atoms colliding with each other the same way anything else is. And so what that leads to is what we would call determinism, which means you never actually make a decision. You think you make decisions. You have the illusion of making decisions. You have the illusion of mental experiences, but you don't actually have them. What you have is a biological organism that exists, atoms colliding with atoms, and as a result of those atoms colliding with atoms, you do things that were determined by a biological series. Of biological event happened, biological cause happened, biological event happens, Biological cause, biological effect. Biological cause, biological effect. That's the way the world works. You have no mind. That's just it. So now let's look at the second view. The second view would say that you are a psychological being, which means that your body is unimportant and all that's important is how you understand yourself mentally. That if I am, if there are, if I am at odds within my brain, within my mind, with my identity, with how I understand what I am in this world, if there's an, a, a tension between what I am in here and what I am here in my, in my body, then the trump card goes to the mind. The body is just the, the vessel I'm riding around in. I am essentially my mind. This is of lower importance. This body that I have doesn't matter. It's, it's not something that should be paid any attention to. Now, this does raise, this is where we get to some of the issues we have today, where you have these different views colliding as we're trying to understand policy and obligations and duties to one another. If you see yourself as essentially a psychological being, then what you think you are is what you are. 
and the material world doesn't really get to do anything in that. This takes what was considered once a weakness in arguments. If I, talk, if I teach logic to a middle schooler and a high schooler and a college person, one of the things we'll, dis, we'll discover or we'll discuss is what we call self-reports. There, is, there are objective ideas out in the world, and then there are subjective states. A self-report is where I tell you what I feel or how I think about something, and, and I can't be wrong about that. I'm not capable of being wrong about it. And that has historically been a weakness of that way of understanding argument. So if you and I were talking and I said, we, there's a question of whether or not body armor, I've got a Gatorade right next to me as I'm doing this. Uh, I have, it's a question of whether or not Gatorade or body armor is more effective at replenishing lost nutrients after exercise. Well, there'd be a way to determine that. And we would run tests and we would try to control and we would, we would see how each one of them performed and we would gather up objective data to answer that question. And if I, if I asked you that, which one, which one is better at helping replenish the nutrients and electrolytes lost during exercise and restoring you to a place where you can perform at an optimal level. And you say, I just really like yellow Gatorade much more than body armor. Well, what you've done is tell me something I can't argue with because you're telling me about an internal state within you. I can't tell you you're wrong. That's outside of logical discussion. You say you like yellow Gatorade, I get it. But what you haven't done is answer the question, which is better? You've told me which one you like, not, but we haven't addressed the issue at all of objectively which one performs at the highest level to accomplish the objectives that they both exist to accomplish. Self-reports are meaningless information for anybody outside of yourself. I like cheeseburgers with bacon and mushrooms on them. You may not. I like Granny Smith apples. You may like red apples. I like Coke. You may like Pepsi. All I'm telling you is something internal in my city. And by the way, if I tell you today that I love Coke and then I wake up tomorrow and you and I are talking and I say, oh my gosh, I love Pepsi so much. You say, no, 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 no. You love Coke. You told me that yesterday. I'm still right. I get to tell you that today I like Pepsi and that I don't like Coke anymore. You can't say I'm wrong because what I'm telling you is about something going on inside of me. So if I understand myself as a psychological being, that becomes the power of that all of a sudden. What has historically been a, a rhetorical weakness about it, which is that the information is of no use to anybody outside of me because it doesn't answer any questions objectively for anybody anywhere, has suddenly become the power of it. No matter what I tell you, I think I am. I'm right. You can't argue with what I think I am, what I feel like I am. You're not allowed to. You don't have that ability. And if you ask, but what about this in front of you? Something else, some other objective fact. I just get to say it doesn't matter. Those are those facts, objective though they may be, are immaterial to my understanding of what it means to be a human being. What I believe I am, how I identify myself, what I understand myself as psychologically is the truth of what I am. And that truth cannot be argued because it's how I identify, not what you think. So that's another view. We had the body view, we had the psychological view, and then we get to what has traditionally been a Christian view and other belief systems that were a dynamic union of body and mind, body and spirit, that both matter. And then we have to attend to the needs of both. We have to attend to the flourishing of both. If there's tension between the two, 
then that view makes sense of it. If, if somebody tells me that internally I feel like I'm one thing, but my body is another, that view makes sense of that tension because both matter. If, if you're just a psychological being, then the one doesn't matter and the other takes preeminence. And so it doesn't matter what that thing is at all. All that matters is what you are in here. And there's no reason to change it at all or to worry about it at all because you can just embrace the identity that you have psychologically. But if there's, if there's tension ever in any of this, and that tension doesn't just come when we're talking about transsexualism or things like that. That tension comes up all across the board. If you, there's people that are, that are suffering from that kind of dysmorphia in other areas as well. But when there's tension between the mind and the body, that view makes sense of it because both matter and they both have something to say and we have to attend to the flourishing of both. And so when we have conversations about what we're about to launch into, we have to have, we have to be mindful as we enter into it. What do we mean when we're talking about human beings at all? There'll be a group of people that we can talk to. They will come from that first group that I mentioned they see nothing special about humanity at all, nothing to preserve, nothing wonderful, nothing mysterious, nothing beautiful, just a biological entity that exists. Augmenting you is great. Downloading you is great because there's no risk of losing anything because there's nothing there that's important. There's a transitional form between what was once one thing and that will become another. And getting past that transitional form in transhumanism or posthumanism is the point. I don't care that we lost our humanity. Humanity was never anything to be preserved. So that's important to understand if that's somebody that we're talking to, that that's the view that they hold and that I don't hold that view. And so there's going to be some tension between them and me as we discuss what it means to be a human being and what's important to preserve in our humanity and what's not. Same thing with somebody who sees themselves only as a psychological being, that all they are is what's here and that this embodiedness doesn't matter whatsoever. If they can somehow extend the existence of their mind beyond the body, then they lose nothing of importance because the body doesn't mind matter anyway. Well, I don't agree with that either. So embodiedness matters to me. If it doesn't matter to you, then we have to understand that when we have these conversations, it's not just the raw data of what can be accomplished through AI, through transhumanism, through posthumanism. It's not just the raw data about what we can do as far as extending life beyond. It's not just the raw data on what we can do to augment another human being. What's also being discussed is what does it mean to exist now in this moment as a human being? What dangers to that existence are being introduced as we pursue how much do the people who are inventing these things care or how much of it is actually the point to get past humanity? All of these things are at play. And if you think human beings are the image bearers of God, and if you think we are at our highest level of operation when we are loving God and loving man as our, our, our neighbors ourselves, if you think the most important thing that you encounter every day of your life are your fellow image bearers that God has put you in proximity of to communicate his love and grace and mercy and truth into their lives so that they may grow more in accordance with the truth and more in a relationship with God, then what we're about to talk about matters deeply because we're talking about different ideas of what it means to be a human being. And somebody is wrong. If you have three views of what it means to be a human being, somebody's wrong. 
more likely than not, somebody's right. It's not necessarily true. We could have some nuanced conversation about that, but, uh, you know, between the three options that I gave, if one of those is necessarily true, but one of two of them are wrong for certain. And I think one of them's right. So as we launch into this and we welcome our guest in Ben Mitchell in a moment here, I want you to keep in mind as we have a far reaching conversation about these things that what we're talking about goes beyond just what can we do with technology today? It goes beyond what are we experiencing with technology? It goes on to the very question of what it means to be a human being at all and whether or not the advancement of certain technologies are about the preservation, protection, and flourishing of human beings or whether the advancement in these technologies is about the abandonment of our humanity altogether. So let's bring him on. All right, now we want to welcome Ben Mitchell to the show. Ben Mitchell's the guest for three things today. He's going to talk about a number of things related to biotechnology, AI, and that area. That's why I called him. I want, I want to say this before we start, Ben. Um, I call people onto this show. I have people come on because I think when you have one point of view, like if, if, I ju- if it was just me on this show, you run the risk of not having people who think or see things differently. And in addition to the uh, massive amounts of works that you've, re- that you've written and that I've read online and other places, I, got the, I had the privilege of hearing you speak one time about something I had talked about, was a physician-assisted suicide. And what struck me in listening to you talk about it was, even though we come from a similar background and we come in the sense of what we believe and what's important to us, you spoke about it in a way that was entirely different than the way that I talked about it. And I love that. I love the idea that we can come from the same moral background, but have different ways of expressing the same ideas. And, and when I heard that and I started studying AI and I was looking in other things in this area where we talk about the advancement of technology and what it means for human beings, I, I just remembered that moment. And I thought, if I could just get Ben Mitchell on the show so that he could come in and we could have a conversation about this because I know he thinks from a similar background, but he expresses himself and thinks through these things differently than I do and have a tremendous value for that. So, or a place tremendous value on that. So thank you so much for coming on the show and for offering up your three things for the audience today. Well, thanks, Jay. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, I do appreciate the work of Merely Human. Uh, I, I think human beings are pretty special. Um, yes. And so I like the work that you're doing and grateful uh, for the opportunity to have a conversation together and to, to bring to our, our various perspectives uh, on, on the subject. So I do want to talk about three big, big topics, but they're, they're under the umbrella, uh, as you alluded, under the umbrella of technology. And um, the late Albert Borgman, a philosopher of technology, just passed away a couple of months ago, uh, said in his book on technology that uh, people approach technology uh, in a couple of different ways. For some people, new technologies like roller coasters uh, create exhilaration and they just go crazy about any new technology. They stand around uh, the block uh, at the, the Apple store to, to get the new uh uh, technology that's coming off the line and um, people are exhilarated by these new technologies. At the same time, um, roller coasters also produce vertigo in some people. And um, uh, I think that that uh, as we hear uh, over and over and over again about 
new technologies coming online, new technologies being uh, developed and uh, invented, there's a tendency for us to um, either either get a kind of fatigue so that we uh, so it loses its impact. And so we go, oh, yeah, it's something new and and don't consider its implications. Or um, there's there is the, the temptation, I think, uh, to get the uh, um, to use that analogy of vertigo to mm. uh, feel like um, it's just dizzying. I, I can't I can't possibly grasp what's going on. And so we just kind of put our hands on top of our head and say, say, oh, no, um, Lord, protect us uh, from this. So I think there's a, I think there's a middle ground. Uh, I think I think some technologies and some aspects of technology are exhilarating. But also, I also think that we ought to be technological realists and understand the technology uh, can bite back. And that's one of the one of the challenges, I think, for us to to be able to to try to anticipate the potential uh, benefits and burdens of new technologies and and artificial intelligence is one of those technologies yeah and i think you see one of the things i think is interesting about what you said at least i've noticed it in the generation that raised my wife and I, the, our parents uh, you notice that there's a struggle as technology advances for them to want to keep engaging that technology right is is the world of the technological world that they knew and they were comfortable in is changing it's interesting to watch how people, and even my age at this point, I'm watching how people are processing the advancement of change. My, a friend of mine who's just a little bit older than, my, than, than I am have had many arguments about things like the, the oncoming of, of self-driving cars or things mm -hmm. and what that means for the structure of the world around him. He, he has that, what you would say, what you term is like more vertigo. And so does some of, some of our parents where the, the advancement of technology, it feels like they are they can't process it and they're left behind by it and they feel threatened by it. And it, it becomes, I mean, they're not Luddites, right? I mean, we're not talking about people that just are afraid of technology. They don't want to move off and become Amish, but their, their ability to engage in it or interact with it diminishes their ability or their inability to interact with it diminishes their ability to fully enjoy kind of where technological advancement goes. So, I mean, I, I know that's a more limited scope, but I see that even, that's why I wanted to bring that up. There is that deep-seated fear of what technology is bringing. But even on a more limited term, as, as it advances and we feel like it's it's left us behind, there can be a struggle for people to keep engaged in how the world is changing around them. Where for me, I've tried to be very intentional about keeping up with all of that. Yeah. Yeah. So you raised a couple of really uh, uh, poignant uh, uh points and I want to I want to come back to that. Uh, so on the one hand, let's think about technology as any extension of the human body to do certain tasks. Mm. So well, I think I think our tendency is to think of technology as advanced technologies, but but um, a shovel is a technology, a yeah. paperclip is a technology. Um, any extension of the human body to do certain work. Um, and you mentioned the Luddites, and I think the Luddites get a bad rap. Um, and here's here's why. Um, Luddite is usually meant just to be a conversation stopper. Um, yes. Oh, you know, any new technology comes along and you don't want to adopt it. Oh, you, you must be a Luddite. Well, yeah. who were the Luddites? I mean, the Luddites were um, uh, a 19th century, late 18th century, 19th century uh, group of people in, in Scotland, actually, who... Um, were involved in the uh, knitting uh, industry, but not industry, the knitting, uh, they, they basically had a cottage industry of knitting 
mills and looms. Families did it. They did it in their homes. They did it in, in little um, craft shops. Uh, and what happened uh, historically was that uh, industrialization came to Scotland, the factories came to Scotland, and basically stole the work uh, that these and the, and the products that these uh, people were doing on a small scale, a family scale, and turned it into factories. And there was a man named Ned Ludd, who was either a pseudonym, uh, he may just have been a mythical creature, um, or it may have been a real person, but he was the supposed leader of the rebellion against industrialization. And so anyone who followed Ned Ludd um, was referred to as a Luddite. Unfortunately, uh, some pretty tragic things occurred in, in uh, Yorkshire, uh, England, and Scotland at the time. Uh, and uh, there were some uh, uh, people killed um, in the the riots and rebellions. Mm. And uh, so there were some, there were some pretty sad consequences of that, but the Luddites, uh, if you will, or the, or the people who became known as the Luddites were really technological. Um, they had looms. They didn't yeah. make uh, their knit, knitted goods. They didn't just make them with uh, knitting um, uh uh, whatever you I can't need, need needles. Um, they actually had looms and, and they were craftsmen, craftswomen. Um, and the same way that the Amish are not non-technological. Yeah. They, they don't plow their fields with their hands. Um, they use uh, plows and they're pulled by, by animals. Um, they use shovels and other, but they are, they are critical adopters of technology. That is to say, they look at their form of life, their way of inhabiting the world, and they ask the question, will this technology help us do that? Or will it in some way distract or, or, or take away from our form of life in the same way that the, the Luddites did? And I think, sadly, um, Quentin um, Schultz in, in his book, one of his books on technology said, um, unfortunately, most of us, most Westerners and especially most Americans are unreflective early adopters of technology. That is to say, we are consumers of the latest technology without thinking about what its implications are or without, without considering what form of life we want to live and whether or not this technology helps us live that form of life. I have a colleague uh, back at Union University where I taught for 11 years uh, when considering a uh, smartphone for his uh, two uh, pre-adolescent sons um, said in a group of faculty members, uh, I'd rather give my sons a um, chainsaw than a smartphone. Yeah. And there was a gasp. What are you talking about? And he said, and he made he made a really important point. I thought he said they know a chainsaw is dangerous. They don't know the dangers that can lurk in smartphone usage. And there's and there's no. I mean, on that point, and I know we haven't even gotten to point one yet. I don't think, but but, <laughs> no. but there, but that point is so important because. I can stand in front of, I get the opportunity to speak in front of younger audiences. And so I can stand in front of a younger audience with a bunch of parents in the room and tell them, 
to the best of my knowledge at this point, and I'm not a, an expert, but I've done a lot of reading on it. To the best of my knowledge, there has not been a single study that has come out about the long-term effects of screen usage and the way that it's being done today that says that anything beneficial is happening and everything that we get is negative. I can sit here and list to you all of the negative things that are happening to you, both cognitively, emotionally, psychologically, by your, your, our, your obsession or your, um, I mean, by your use of that phone, the way that we use those phones, the way that it functions in our world. And still, I know not a single person in this room will stop using it and not a single parent right. in this room will restrict your access to it even though there is not a, there is not anything that we, and even with my own kids, I have to tell them, like I was telling my son who's in college and he's doing great. He's doing fantastic in college. I had to tell them we're book readers in this family. So, so you have to take a priority. You have to prioritize book reading. If I ask anybody in this family, what book you're reading at any given moment, I expect an answer. And right now, when I ask you what book you're reading outside of the studies you're doing for school, I'm not hearing it, but I'm hearing a lot about video games right now. And, yeah. And, yeah. and that has to be, a recognition that there's something more important than that immediate satisfaction that you're getting. Cause he, for him, he says, well, that's my downtime. So I'm not saying you can't do that. I'm saying it has to be properly ordered in your life and yes. that you have to understand that you need to learn to take enjoyment or reflective downtime from other sources of entertainment and not just screens. So it like what you just said is so important, I think, because in the sense that it, we know that there's negative impacts it's, it's not, I don't even think it's true at this point that we can say that we don't know that it's as dangerous as a chainsaw, ultimately maybe even greater dangers, and it still doesn't change the way that we work. And, and this is one small point I want to make before I turn it back to you, because I was thinking about this while you were saying it. Part of it is that if the Amish, or let's say that, that we're, instead of being an unreflective adapter of technology or adopter of technology, what, what ends up happening, though, is that when you make that stand you ultimately have to almost declare yourself that I am loyal to a particular level of technological advancement to society. And it becomes difficult to work on a smaller scale. Think about the idea. If you're working on a computer that's five years old, it's not going to function on right. the internet today. It's not going to be capable of keeping up with the way that technology is operating because everybody designing websites and everybody designing apps and everybody designing interactive entertainment is going to do it at the highest rate that they possibly can to be at the forefront of, of what they're supplying to their customers and old technology and saying five years old seems ridiculous, but old technology struggles to keep up. And then that affects your ability to function. And so that's where I think we have that weird line because I, you can, you can see that fear of missing out that we like to talk about in people when they're looking at the world around them, that fear of missing out wouldn't just be about social, social interactions. If I don't have up-to-date technology, I'm out of date and my ability to interact with the world is just being designed around me and I'm falling behind. I, I saw this recently with a person in my life that I told you, you should not probably drive anymore. You're not good at it, but that's okay because you can Uber a lot of places and it's not really necessary for you to drive. And the, the absolute refusal to go that, that, that represented an interaction with a level of technology that they are just not willing to, they're willing to risk their life driving. Right, they're not right. willing to get an Uber app on their phone and then trust that that will get them from place to place. So there's such an interesting balance, right? Between that idea of not recklessly adopting technology as it comes out because you just want to be advanced. And at the same time, living in a place where I prefer a level of advancement over another level of advancement uh, because I just refuse to move on to where the world is going. Yeah, and and somewhere probably in between those two is something that, um, 
like just being embedded in certain technologies. And we are, as you, as you just said, I mean, uh, it's, it's almost impossible to live life without a smartphone. Now, um, try, try purchasing anything without a credit card, um, uh, or credit card number, uh, uh, or other technologies. It's just, it just, um, part of the, part of the, the challenge of living in this part of the 21st century as it has been in, in the past is that um, our technology, we shape our technologies, but our technologies also shape us. And yes. it's impossible to extricate ourselves um, really uh, and, and live in the 21st century, impossible to, to extricate ourselves from um, some of, some of the technologies that, that are just part of the, the air that we breathe and the water we swim in every day. And, and, and what, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no. And, and AI is one of those. Yes. Um, and, and I, I mean, want to get to that, but, but yeah. going back to what you just said there, cause I like what you said sir, earlier about technology and tools, because it's important to recognize that that is at the most basic level, right? The introduction to a shovel to your life will change you. It seems yeah. crazy to say that, but I mean, think about even when, if you read like, like Jared Diamond's um, Guns, Germs, and Steel, where he talks about things like the introduction of stirrups on right. saddles and how that changes the warfare. And, and, and then that ultimately changes the way that different civilizations survive or thrive. Uh, and so small, what we would consider not even technology, but just tools. Tools give us the ability to do more, but they also change us. But so now, yes, let's get yeah, on to yeah. your, your actual. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, but you, but you, you keep bringing things up. I got I need to talk with you about it. I, um, I, love, I love it. Yes. Uh, for, for, for instance, um, you said just now, um, tools give us the ability to do more. And that's one of the things that technology both achieves for us, but also challenges us uh, in, in some ways or tempts us in some ways. So, so for, for instance, as you said, um, tools do enable us to do more and do more faster. Uh, we can dig a deeper hole um, and we can do it more efficiently with a shovel. And computer technology is the same way. Uh, I wouldn't want to try to uh, do the math uh, that my computer can do uh, at all. And then I certainly couldn't do it as, as quickly as the computer could do it. So it offers us efficiency and that's good um, for some tasks, Mm. Um, digging holes uh, perhaps, um, or doing math problems. At the same time, um, technology tempts us to see efficiency as a trump, Mm. Uh, that efficiency, just because it's um, faster and maybe even better um, it's therefore um, uh, obligatory. Uh, we yeah. have to use it. There's a kind of technological imperative to that. But efficiency shouldn't be the trump for every um, life choice that we make. Uh, I'll give you an example. This, uh, this year, my wife and I will celebrate our 48th wedding anniversary. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, thanks. Um, uh, I'm pretty happy about that. I, I, I think she is. Um, <laughs> but what would it be like if, if we're sitting at, at our anniversary dinner, um, candlelit maybe, or um, uh, and, and, and reminiscing about our life together, and she looks over at me and says, Ben, I want you to know you're the most efficient husband a woman could want. <laughs> 
I wouldn't know what she's saying. I mean, uh, is she complimenting me? Is she, is this, is this a term of derision to be an efficient husband? Um, And it's because it's a category mistake. That is to say, we don't, uh, the the metric by which we gauge relationships is not efficiency. Um, You mentioned your, your, your children. If your children said, dad, you're the most efficient dad, uh, you're more efficient than the other dads uh, in my neighborhood. Uh, what would that mean? Because we don't we don't use uh, efficiency as the metric for certain things. Yes. And I think technology tempts us to say just because it's faster and can do more, it's therefore better. And I think that's I, I think we need to push back on that. And again, ask the question: What kind of life do we want to live? Yeah. You know, how do I want to inhabit the world? And does this technology help me do things more efficiently uh, uh, that contribute to that way of life? Or is efficiency a blinder to uh, the way I ought to see the world? One quick story before we move on from that, because I think it it illustrates your point. This is one of my favorite stories I ever heard. Sean Connery was actually talking about this uh, many years ago in an interview when he was, when they were making The Man Who Would Be King. And he said that one of the days where they were filming, uh, they had to said we had to go out to the mountains, right? And so we're leaving the town, we're driving out to this mountain range, and it's one of those places where the the, the ground before you get to the mountains is is flat. The train is crazy flat, so you can see for miles and miles. And he says, and suddenly as we're driving towards the mountains, we see this little dot on the horizon. As we get closer and closer and closer, and we get bigger, we see a man walking just alone, just walking from the mountains. And we ask the driver, where is that guy going? He says, oh, well, they have to walk from the mountain to the town to do whatever business they got to do. And then they walk back. So we said, so we film, and that guy said was so far out. So they film all day and that evening they're driving back. And then they see, he said, again, I see this dot on the horizon. We're getting closer and closer and closer. And we realize it's that guy again. He is still so far away from the city and he's been walking all day. So they pull up. Sean Connery said, we go up to this guy and we say, we pull him and said, tell the guy to jump in the Jeep and we will drive him all the way to the town. So he can not. And, and so the driver, get the, so the translator gets out and starts talking to the guy and the guy's waving his hands like that. Like, no, 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 I'm not interested. And he said, tell him we can save him all this time. And so he tells the guy again and he said, he doesn't want to go. And he said, does he not realize I me? Mean, we can, we can take a whole day off of it. He said, I told him we can save him time. And he said, and what did he say? And said, the guy said, I have no idea what I would do with the extra time that I got. So he was, he's the guy's like, this is my life, man. And I know what, how my life functions. And you take me there. You think you're doing some great favor for me, but that guy's response is my life's planned out just fine. And I don't, I have no idea what I would do with the extra time. It's not something that's going to be a great benefit to me right now. Yeah. 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 So, um, that brings us to artificial intelligence because it, it promises, uh, promises, uh, to help us to do more faster. Uh, to give us efficiency, and it's artificial intelligence, as as the title um, or the name implies, is really just a way of doing computation, uh, mm. or or a way of um, uh, collecting and curating data um, that um, we could do uh, uh, perhaps with our brains uh, if we had enough time, but we don't, uh, and so uh, computers can gather the data, uh, curate the data or, or, or arrange it. And, um, in some cases, of course, create, um, new data, uh, and, and AI is just a large, uh, uh, the term just refers to the ability of technologies 
to gather and collect and manipulate these large data sets uh, of information. And they're all over. We, we, we I mean, um, we don't even know. Uh, it's invisible to us, some of the yeah. AI that's, that's part of our lives now, but some of it is visible. For instance, whenever you have the autocomplete, you're starting a word and it, and it, the, your phone or your uh, computer finish that word for you, uh, fill in the letters, that's a form of AI. Um, or all social media uh, is embedded with AI. Or uh, voice uh, activated uh, uh, either uh, tools, uh, technologies, or even to be able to change uh, your voice uh, into written language. Um, those are those are examples of artificial intelligence, voice recognition. Um, and it's used um, all the time for mathematical problem solving, um, uh, sorting through huge amounts of information. Um, uh, and it's the technology behind GPS and uh, Google Maps and uh, SatNav, uh, Waze, whatever kind of uh, directional mapping uh, tools that we use. Uh, but it's also, uh, it could also be associated not just with um, uh, information we, we, we find, it can also power other tools like robots. Uh, yeah. We know what a chat bot is. Uh, anytime you try to order something online, uh, you might get a little chat bot comes up and says, do you have any questions? Sometimes there's a person at the other end of that, but sometimes uh, people have asked enough of the, of the same kinds of questions that there's an algorithm, uh, a mathematical tool that um, uh, anticipates uh, what you're going to ask. When you ask it, it sorts through all of its data and gives you an answer uh, that it thinks uh, will uh, handle your question. Yeah. And that's just artificial intelligence. And it's everywhere. Um, uh, there's no way to escape it. Uh, uh, and it has lots of really helpful um, uses. So, uh, I think that, I think that's, um, I think that's, that's where we should begin, that there are potentially good uses and we're making many of those, uh, good uses, uh, uh, as well. But, but more recently, there have been some worries that have emerged about, about artificial intelligence. And, um, one, I, I suppose one kind of, um, blip on the radar was at the end of 2022 and the and the announcement that now chat gpt uh would be available free to anyone who wants to to log on and use it and chat gpt is a a, um, a language processing um uh, artificial intelligence uh, that you can add, i'm sure many people have already played with it. Uh, you can ask it a question or give it a command. Um, uh, tell me about the Luddites and it will generate an essay for you on the Luddites. Yeah. It goes out to its um, encyclopedia, if you will, uh, of information. Uh, it gathers what it thinks uh, and, and it's, it's not a person, it's a machine. Uh, but this machine has been taught, uh, programmed uh, to uh, sort through the information and hopefully, and I say hopefully, 
uh, hopefully provide you with the information that you want in an accurate way. And then we'll, we'll spin it out in really pretty good prose. That is yeah. to say, it, it writes a lot better than um, a freshman uh, English composition uh, uh, is usually written. Uh, and, and so when it became available, and it was it was um, now made free uh, to anyone who wanted to sign up. It had already been out there. Um, you had to pay. There was a, a fee uh, associated with it. Um, companies were using it for marketing uh, to write marketing copy copy and other things. Uh, but when it became free, um, uh, that changed. It was a kind of tipping point uh, in which now it's available. Now it's going to be used, uh, and it's it's going to be used. You know, the, the, the big deal was it's going to be used by students uh, uh, to help them yeah. cheat on cheat on their papers. And, you know, when I when I when I saw that, um, I, I thought, yeah, that's going to happen. But cheating's been with us forever and cheating will be with us in the future, whether you have Chad GPT or not. So that wasn't the big deal to me. Yeah. The big deal to me. And, and as as we thought about it, um, the big deal to me was one. Um, uh, is the information that chat GPT um, generates, uh, is it accurate? Um, uh, and then secondly, um, is, is there, is using chat GPT as a shortcut, um, does it, does it harm the way we think? Let me, let me say a word about that. Okay. So um, Flannery O'Connor um, and other other famous writers have said something like this. Um, somebody said, what do you think about such and such? And she said, I don't know. I haven't written about it yet. And the connection between thinking and writing is a really important connection. Uh, when we write something out, when we when we articulate our thoughts in in uh, writing something, we think through it in a different way than we do just talking. Yeah. Uh, we think through it in a more systematic way. We choose our verbs. We choose our nouns. We choose the placement of the, those verbs and nouns. Uh, we, we, we put uh, some words in scare quotes because they're meant to be a placeholder for an idea that we think is important or, or maybe using a word in a different way. In other words, in other words, there's, there's much nuance in, in writing uh, in, in ways that, um, that help us to think through systematically, we hope, uh, think through systematically um, what we actually um, believe or, or think about a certain, certain subject. And so, so my worry is that ChatGPT, if it's used unwisely, um, will um, truncate or um, diminish uh, our ability to think through in the same way. Yeah. That I think, you know, um, I, I use a calculator. Uh, there's nothing wrong with a calculator, as long as you know how math works. That's right. You need to know how math works for the calculator to be truly um, useful to you. Um, and the same is true, I think, with with a a, a, a tool like ChatGPT. Um, you need to you need to know how to think and then how to write what you think. Uh, before you turn uh, to a product or a technology uh, that's going to do that work for you. 
Yeah, um, and if Facebook has taught me anything, it's that people don't know how to do basic arithmetic. I mean, like all day for for whatever reason, if I get on Facebook and I try not to be on it too much, but if I do get on it, every day there's a new math problem that somebody's just posted. It's just basic arithmetic, and to see the various numbers of answers that show up underneath as far as the answer to that problem, and 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 invariably the right answer is in a, a very small minority as far as the postings goes. Is a bit alarming. Uh, yeah, you're right. And I would tell you back to that point too. I think is interesting because I, my kids, my two oldest, all all three of mine were homeschooled. One of them is uh, two of them are in college now. One of them's about to go to a private high school for a sport. It has nothing to do with they are not being satisfied with homeschooling. But one of the things I remember when I taught them to write. I mean, I was the one that taught them to write because I love writing. I, writing is is very important. I noticed when you were talking about the difference between Flannery O'Connor's discussion about the difference between how we talk and how we write the first time they start writing, they write how they talk. Mm. And, and, and so it would, it was the first challenge was explaining to them what you say and the ability for the brain to hear it and make sense of it and how a reader is going to read what you're reading are two different things. And right. you have to write how a reader is going to read, not how they would hear you talking. And it's very confusing when you write how you talk. It's disorganized. You're putting the wrong information first. There does, there's a lot of elements that are going on. And that's always the funniest part about it to me. When, whenever I was that endeavor starts, is that someone is always putting weird information first. So the order in which they're unleashing information on their audience through writing is the same as when they're talking. And for some reason, it makes sense or you can process it when they're talking to you. But when you read it, it's like, this is a mess. So you need to be more to learn to be more organized with how you're presenting your information, because when you present it like you say it, it reads really difficult to understand the point that you're trying to make. Uh, so that skill is vital uh, to, to be able to. And, and to your point about cheating, by the way, I mean, I was not always a Christian when I was younger. I was an atheist when I was in college and, and had no moral compass whatsoever. And basically I was chat GPT for a lot of my friends. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I'm mm -hmm. not I'm not proud of that now saying that, but it is true. The idea of cheating there were people who would come to me and they would say, will you write this paper? Would you help me write this paper? Because I need a paper done and I got to get an X grade and I could write fast and I would crank out papers for people. Uh, so yeah, they're going to cheat. And their chat GPT was just J back when I was in school. Uh, and I would, I would write a good paper for you and I would be angry. I remember one guy, I wrote a great paper for him and left him a note that you need to fill in X number of things because he has to get to five pages or whatever. And he said, I asked him later, I said, what did you get? And he said, a B. And I got outraged. Like, what do you mean you got a B? And he said, well, I didn't get it all the way to the five pages. I'm like, I told you exactly where to plug in things to get it to five pages, man. I gave you an A paper. I expect my grade. Uh, so, yeah, you're not going to stop cheating, right? No, it's just a, no. It's just a new way of cheating. I, th I think that the way it affects human relationships is interesting. Also, to your point, also, you said hopefully accurate. I mean, I, I, we know what they call AI hallucinations happen when you're talking about these Oracle programs, these programs where you're going to them for information, right? Uh, why they're happening is some, something of a, a mystery that we're trying to figure out through programming, but that they will just randomly say things that ha are not true, have not happened out of maybe some need to fulfill their coding to answer questions. They're putting in information that's not accurate just to get the answer. Right. Right. Well, the, the old, uh, saw um, that we learned a long time ago about computers was garbage in, garbage yeah. out. So yeah. if the wrong information is in there and that's all that the, that the uh, program has to draw from, 
then it's going to produce uh, bad information. And that's that's the case with ChatGPT. You cannot rely on it to give you uh, true information, which, which just like anything else on the internet now, uh, requires that you actually know something uh, and have some tools of discernment uh, so that you can judge whether that's right or wrong, uh, whether it's true or false, or whether it's consistent with um, the historical period that it's writing about or not. Um, you, you can't you can't rely on it to do all the work for you, uh, and 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 that's the that's the worry um, about ChatGPT is that uh, again it, it may be fine for generating copy for uh, marketing. Uh, ads and those kinds of things. Uh, but if you're going to use it to do serious, um, either legal, uh, historical, medical, or other kind of work, you're going to have to have somebody who uh, reads its output, uh, who can determine whether or not it's it's in fact true. And, and there's a couple of cases recently in, in the law where attorneys have tried to use chat GPT um, to do legal cases and it's, it's gotten them in hot water because it's, it's, uh, produced, uh, wrong, uh, precedents for the arguments that they're making, uh, in their, in their legal cases. And we have so, a problem that with what you just said, I'll let me, you know, I'm going to get right back to that. No, but no. what you just said is important because you said we have to be able to discern whether the information coming out based on our own expertise or familiarity with the subject matters. The problem we have is that we know that's not a, a, a ta or it's not a, a skill that people have by and large. And I say this, I think it was about seven years ago. I remember a study coming out while I was teaching young people in a homeschool community. And it said that I think at the time college students couldn't tell the difference between satire and news. High school students couldn't tell the difference between news and advertisements. There was, there was multiple places of failure of people to be able to discern whether information, not even just whether or not information was true or false, but whether it was intended to be true or false or whether it was intended to be selling something to them, they couldn't make any sense of that. And in writing for like I write articles, Christian research journal. And one of the things I've told people for years is don't trust anybody without doing your own homework. Because even when I, when I respond, I had a cottage industry for a while there of responding to New York times articles. And one of the things that I found that was very normal for people writing for the New York Times, whether it was on the editorial board or whether it was a guest writer for the New York Times, was they would put links to their article that did not support the things that they were saying in the article. Right. But because the hyperlink was there, because it was a blue thing there, everybody assumed it was properly sourced. I said, go read the sources. They're making claims that they cannot possibly support. And they're relying on you not to check on it that because they put a hyperlink there that satisfies your need to believe that it's properly sourced. And so the danger of a, of a mechanism that we've been told is superior intellectually to us and being able to produce information and us not having the basic skill to evaluate it could have massive implications on human life. Yeah. 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 I want to, I want to come back to the massive implications uh, because there are, there are plenty of people who are, uh, at least they've expressed, uh, a serious concern about um, artificial intelligence in general. Yeah. I want to I want to kind of describe why that might be the case, and and ChatGPT is one one uh, case in point uh, that um, the information has to be verified, and and as you as you just suggested, we don't we don't have the skill to do that these days because we read texts as flat. 
Um, we don't we don't consider genre. We don't consider intention of the author. We don't consider all those all those things. Uh, a text because we read it on a screen. A text is just a a flat text. That's how people read the Bible today. The Bible is just just a a collection of Hallmark card sayings uh, for mm. some people. You know, we just grab uh, texts. Uh, if I hear another person say it says, uh, I'm gonna I'm just gonna pull my hair out. <laughs> it it didn't say anything. Either God said it, or Paul said it, or the writer of Hebrews said it. Somebody said it in a context to a people in an era with a background, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and yeah. Um, that's not how we read text now. We read it as a, just as a flat piece of, of uh, cloth, if you will, that has no texture, no variation, no, no context. Um, and so we're, we're liable to the very problem that you have suggested that if somebody says something, um, well, I guess it's as good as what I read over here. And then if they put some kind of, uh, marker that this this uh, uh, may have legitimacy or should have legitimacy, like the hyperlink uh, example you used. Um, well, then of course it's 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 true, um, yeah. uh, and that's that, that's that's a, that's a real worry. So, so um, ChatGPT is a chat bot, um, so to speak, a chat robot. Um, but um, AI can also be attached to physical robots. And I recently gave a talk uh, about uh, care bots. These are mm. robots that will be used and are being used, um, uh, for example, in caring for the elderly. And so there's a little uh, seal, uh, S-E-A-L, um, animal, little furry uh, robot that's used uh, in with some senior adults who are beginning to lose cognitive capacities, uh, having having dementia. And uh, this seal, this little robot seal, is there to provide comfort. It's a it's a care bot, uh, but we're now using them and experimenting with them in hospitals. Uh, robots that that go down the hall, um, and uh, they may be able one day to ad administer medications. They can certainly, you know, carry um, uh, packages or or materials from one place uh, to the other. Uh, I've I've uh, seen that there are psych bots, uh, that is psychological robots. Uh, some um, uh, sites on the internet uh, purport to have mental health counselors available. And in fact, it's a psychological chat bot. So wow. you, you say, I'm, I'm having, having a hard time today. And the chat bot will go through its data and say, oh, um, I'm sorry, tell me about it. And um, one uh, uh, one of those resources got in trouble and had to change its um, website uh, because, and you can find this on online, uh, change its website because um, people were writing to the psychological robot, psychbot. They were writing to the psychbot, thinking there was a person answering their their concerns, and in fact, it was just this computer generated. Uh, conversation that was that was going on, uh, and um, yeah, they were marketing it as as you know we're we're a caring company with mm. uh, these trained counselors who are going to be there to help you if you have a need, and um, uh, so they had to they had to change their website and change their practices. But there there's a professor bot, um, uh, there's a 
a professor um, in um, um, one of the Scandinavian countries, uh, Germany, sorry, a professor in Germany who has a teaching assistant who is a robot. Uh, and so um, if, uh, if we can get a robot to teach history, um, and it has, and presume that the robot has all the, the information available. Uh, and if teaching is just about the communication of information, uh, then why can't the robot do yeah. it as well as, as a human being? Uh, there are pastor bots, uh, there in, um, um, in Japan and in other places, there are, uh, priests and, uh, robots that are being used, uh, for pastoral care. There's a Catholic, um, uh, confession bot, uh, where you can give your, your confession pastor to bots. the robot. Yeah. Yeah. Pastor, pastor bots. I'm, I'm yep. sorry, my brain just locked in on that one. Pastor yeah. bots. Yeah. A pastor robot. Um, uh, and, and by the way, um, if you ask chat GPT to write a commentary for you or a sermon, um, on a, a biblical passage, um, sometimes it will do a fairly decent job. Um, <laughs> And so pastors will be using, uh, there's no good reason to think pastors aren't and won't um, use chat GPT yeah. for their research, for their, for their writing their sermons, um, uh, for writing their uh, article in the, the uh, church's online bulletin or whatever. Um, That's and a higher that, calling, uh, man. That is, that yeah. is depressing. There are sex bots. We, yeah, we I probably don't want to go there. Um, uh. and, then, and then there are the care bots. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm troubled by the use. I'm, I'm troubled even by the, the terminology, as I would be a pastor bot. Uh, the terminology of care for a robot. Um, it does. It doesn't seem to me that robots can care. Yeah. Um, uh, it's not. It's not in the. It's not in the um, characteristic of a machine to care. Um, if you ask chat GPT, for instance, certain questions, it will respond and say, oh, I'm not a person. Uh, I don't have an opinion on that. Um, here's some information, uh, but it, I can't tell you whether that's right or wrong, good or bad, whether you ought to do that or not, not do that. I'm just, I'm just a robot. Um, so there's something, I mean, we're on, um, uh, a merely human conversation and there's something to me really suspicious and maybe even dastardly about the notion that instead of humans caring for humans, uh, we'll use robots to care for humans. Um, um, there's something wrong, uh, with our humanity. If we, um, pass that, uh, responsibility on to robots. Now, again, we, yeah, we talked about that a little bit on a earlier episode too, because what you just said, I said, you know, we can't outsource our humanity to yeah. technology, right? I mean, there, yeah. there has to be, it's one thing for it to fill a need because yes. we have places where we just can't provide certain kinds of service and, and they would fill that need to be able to take care of that service. But what it can't do and this, this also, I think, leads also in discussions of physician-assisted suicide. Uh, I know when you read, like, Ira Biox books on hospice care uh, and dying well, he, he worries about the idea initially of the reason he started hospice or became so you know, about pushing the hospice care in the United States was because of the idea of outsourcing the death of the generation that came before us 
to, to strangers. And that, and this is even a step further than that. I mean, this goes beyond just now, instead of our loved ones dying and being cared for by people that they don't know that have no relationship to their life, maybe caring professional people who have a passion and calling to be in that area, but still not their family and not their community. And in, in the real sense that you would hope that they would be there. Uh, now we'll go even further than that and say, there will be no human element there at all in the care of the people around us. It will be all outsourced to a machine. And whether it even makes sense, like you said, to call that care is a question that we would have to answer uh, yeah, because it yeah. feels like neglect. Yeah. And, and, and the, and the motivation um, may be good. Um, yes. And um, again, um, this is what we expect the tools to do for us, to do the work more efficiently than human beings can do it. But is this is this uh, analogous uh, to uh, the question my wife asked me or says to me, the, the statement she says to me over our anniversary dinner, you're the most efficient husband a woman could want. Uh, is efficiency the metric that we want for the care of our senior adults or the care uh, of, of patients uh, who uh, are in the hospital, um, you know, the, the, yeah. the vulnerable? Is, is that is that how we ought to we ought to measure um, the good of care uh, through efficiency. And that's so that what upset me. Wait, I'll tell you one more thing. I'm no, going to no, turn it back sure, to you. Sure, that, what, no. what struck me emotionally when you were talking about the council bot or the psychological psych bot, bot, right? What, the psych bot was this idea. Um, and, and to give just to build on it a little bit, when I, I don't know if I've mentioned this on the show before, but there's a ministry that deals with college students that I work with. And that ministry during COVID had set up like a 24 hour hotline. It was doing things online. And when it set this hotline up, the point of it was so that when people had apologetics questions or theological questions from all over the world that were, and that were doing this through this computer, then this online service, they would be able to call up. And, and what happened, they found out was that, that, unexpectedly was that there was college students that were involved with the program from all over the world calling at all times of hours, but they weren't calling for theological issues and they weren't calling for apologetics mm. issues. Yeah. They were an emotional crisis and they just wanted to talk to somebody. And right. so we're talking about a point where someone is, is reaching out to be involved, to just be in contact with another human being, whatever that means to be seen, to be heard, to interact again with their community in some meaningful way there that's you know people feel isolated when they're struggling and the idea that we have set up a bot to handle that and 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 they don't know that they if they think right. that they're having a meaningful relational experience with another human being and when in reality they're talking to a program that that is just soul crushing to me on some level yeah i mean and, and you know the the um the sad thing is in a, in a and perverse thing is that there were people who did report that they got help, yeah. um, that, that the robot helped them. Um, but that's, again, that's, that's a perversion. Um, that's a disordered yeah. uh, uh, good, if you will. And um, I just don't think, I, I just don't think it's something that we, um, we should tolerate in the sense that we should just say, Oh, well, that's just, the way of the modern world. I think, I think we have yeah. to push back on those things, which means that for, uh, especially, especially as baby boomers continue to age and the next generation continue to age and we, and demographically we have fewer people to care for, um, uh, the, this, uh, large number of, um, aging, 
uh, members of the population. We're going to have we're going to have to think hard about how we care for 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 one another. Um, yeah. We're going to have to um, maybe put some new measures in place, some new strategies for caring for people. And we're certainly going to have to um, expand the number of uh, ways in which we and and the the facilities in which we um, care for mm-hmm. our aging population. And Japan faces this very very thing. Uh, they uh, marched out, if you will, um, this um, uh, uh, army of care bots, uh, and then they found out that, in fact, um, there were uh, massive problems uh, mm. in both the care and then also uh, the use of the robots. They found out they still had to have a person check the robot. Uh, for everything that that the robot was doing, so it really didn't um, save uh, resources. It didn't save um, time. It didn't save personnel needs. Um, it just shifted them uh, in a different way. And the same the same is true of, of many of the jobs that AI is producing. Artificial intelligence. Uh, you read some reports, and they will say to you, "Look, we're creating lots and lots of new jobs." Well, it turns out that many of the jobs, uh, we, you know, if you're a computer programmer or, or you are are trained uh, in certain ways, yeah, you may have a job at a higher echelon in artificial intelligence. But but for many people, the the AI technologies are displacing you from good jobs and giving you lesser paying jobs or jobs yeah. that don't require as much um, uh, human engagement. Um, so that's you know we're we're going to have to think carefully about um, uh, our uh, about our our embrace of artificial intelligence and that and that's I want to go back to the worry that I uh, mentioned earlier. Um, there are there are plenty of people who are um, worried about artificial intelligence because one of the characteristics of artificial intelligence potentially is that it can self learn. That is. Yes. I don't even like the word. I don't like the word learning in the way I don't like the word caring. But it can grow its own databases. Uh, it can grow its own information and its own and and, and program itself to a certain extent. And so that's led to, uh, for instance, the Center for Artificial Intelligence Safety um, uh, uh, gathering uh, uh, artificial intelligence uh, experts and others uh, in a um, in a, um, uh, a manifesto, as it were, uh, calling on uh, calling on us to monitor and shape artificial intelligence uh, in a way that reflects it as a global priority. In other words, uh, here, here's what the uh, Center for Artificial Intelligence Safety uh, calls on people to sign on to uh, that we should mitigate the risk of extinction that is human extinction we should mitigate the risk of extinction from from ai and it should be a global priority alongside other uh, social uh, risks such as or risk to society such as pandemics and nuclear war yeah so so uh the Center for Artificial Intelligence Safety recognizes that AI could um, not just be used for nefarious purposes, but it could actually outgrow our ability to control it. Yeah. Um, unless we unless we build in somehow 
and we don't know how yet, but unless we build in um, some safeguards that will keep artificial intelligence in the command of um, human beings and not its own its own uh, thing. I don't know if you you've know, read um, Nick Bostrom's book, Super Intelligence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, Nick, yeah, he, I mean, he's, and this is a guy, Nick Bostrom, that you, you just mentioned. I mean, here's a guy who will get into it. And when we talk about transhumanism, here's a guy who, um, is a technological optimist in many ways yeah. who thinks technology uh, should be used to not just to extend human life, but even to take us to the post-human uh, yeah. um, future. Uh, but at the same time, he realizes in, in that book, um, he realizes that there is is the possibility of a global catastrophic um, uh, outcome yeah. of superintelligence. Uh, and um, yeah, I've, I've talked to Nick a couple of times and it's very yeah. interesting to talk to him uh, because in, in his earlier years, uh, I would ask Nick, I'd say, well, Nick, just just to pose a question, I'd say, well, if we extend human lifespan indefinitely, will we have a problem feeding the population? And he said, oh, well, we'll get a technology to take care of that. And so yeah. technology was the answer to the problems created by technology. But, but he began to consider, um, certainly not because of me, but he began to consider uh, the implications of some technologies. And he ran a program along, alongside of his transhumanist program called a program on, on global catastrophic risk. And superintelligence comes out of that. That yeah. book, Superintelligence, comes out of that where he worries that, you know, we may turn into a big gray goo. Um, uh, yeah. He talks about the the treacherous turn. I mean, I mean those those chapters where he talks what you were just talking about when you said we don't know how to control it, and Bostrom talks about all of the ways that we would attempt to control it and the ways that it could fail. Either the treacherous turn where he says it, it may be that at some accumulation of knowledge, the program itself decides to fulfill its ultimate objectives requires taking paths and in in a, in a like the worst like possible popular level discussion of that would probably be like Ultron in the uh, Avengers the second Avengers movie and Marvel movie where within seconds of coming to existence he realizes that to serve his programming the best way to do it would be to destroy humanity altogether yeah. and so yeah. Boston talks about that treacherous turn or it may be that the AI sees that if it doesn't look like it's cooperative early it will hide its true intentions or desires until at such time that it has the freedom to do what it wants. Or he talks about the perversion of our desires uh, through its objectives, right? It's, it's like, and I would see when I, when I, he didn't say this, but when I was reading it, I was thinking of it like trying to ask a genie for a wish in a way that the genie can't mess it up, right? It's, it's right. The, right. the trouble of if it intends to, to, to do something negative with what you're asking from it, there's almost no way to ask it in a way that it can't be perverted into something bad. And so he, that's what I thought was so fascinating reading his, both of what you said, this is a guy who's technologically optimistic and doesn't see any deep value really in what it means to be a human, doesn't see something there to pre preserve, but is looking to move past it. Right. Uh, and at the same time, he recognizes, and through that book, he, they, they make multiple claims that are just jaw dropping, where a third of people who are working with AI aren't sure that there's any way to avoid basically human extinction or the destruction of human beings. Uh, through the production of AI, the, the idea that there's almost no way to think of how we could constrain superintelligence if we let it loose, uh, right. that it would it would operate so much faster than us, understand the constraints that we're trying to place on us, be able to get around them, 
Uh, and and it, it is an it's an alarming thought process that you go through that we're intentionally trying to develop. And and, and the one I thought was the most fascinating was when he talks about it's not even like giving it simple objectives could stop this from happening. Because remember where he talks about paper clips, you can tell a program uh, to a, ro- a robotic program to give it AI that says just make paper clips. And from that, he said, from just that objective, it could become a tyrant in the universe. If it's right. all, all of the universe as resources and materials to fulfill its objective, to turn the whole universe into a paperclip producing universe, it, it has yeah. no deep villainous objective uh, but because it can become perverted or treacherous in its application of even simple objectives, it just represents an existential danger that we can't possibly understand. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, all it's doing is just working with its numbers. Yeah. There's no, there's no intention. There's no will. Uh, yeah. It's just, it's just crunching numbers, and without, without regard to the, the carnage the human carnage uh, along the way. Eliezer Yudowski, who is a uh, an AI expert and, and AI technologist, says if someone builds a, a too powerful AI, um, that could mean that every member of the human species dies shortly thereafter. Um, so we're at a, we're kind of at a precarious point, and and we should have learned something from history. Um, uh, after the Manhattan Project big project to build nuclear weapons. We were so worried about the possibility of, of the annihilation of human beings through nuclear weapons that we said, you know, maybe we should be thinking about the ethics of the technologies, at least um, ideally before, but at least along with the development of the technology. So when the Human Genome Project came around and there was a worry about uh, manipulating uh, the human genetic blueprint in ways that might end up um, destroying hu- humanity. Uh, the the uh, Human Genome Project included five to seven percent of its budget for the ELSI LC component, ethical, legal, and social implications or social issues um, of um, mapping and using. Um, genetic technologies uh, for human well-being. The ELSI component. Well, there is no ELSI component in an AI. Nobody, nobody yeah. sat down and said, "Now, before we develop these technologies, uh, before we let ChatGPT out there for everybody, um, we need to think through the ethical, legal, and social implications. Some of the legal implications are as, as important as any of the others. I mean, who owns the information?" Uh, through copyrights that ChatGPT is is drawing from. There's another program called Dolly uh, that is the art program. So you can tell Dolly, uh, draw draw a picture of, um, uh, of um, oh, yourself, um, uh, of Jay. Draw a picture of Jay um, as um, Coco the Clown. And ChatGPT, uh, uh, sorry, Dolly will generate an image of you in a clown outfit and 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 no one would know that it's not something that an artist did. It's computer-generated yeah. technology. And we've all seen enough CGI on, in the movies to, to realize that sometimes it's it's almost impossible and getting more impossible to tell reality from the computer-generated images. Yeah. 
So um, who who owns uh, who who owns the copyright? Who owns the trademark? Um, who owns the material that's generated by ChatGPT? Um, can you copyright it? Um, so there are huge intellectual property uh, questions, those legal questions that we're talking about some of the social issues. Um, uh, so, so, so we need, we need the time to think about those things. And there a group of, uh, uh, AI technologists called for a six month, uh, moratorium. Um, but, but some of those technologists, including uh, Elon Musk and others, we're going to continue to work on their technology yeah. while we have, have a, a six-month moratorium uh, to talk about it. The same uh, thing so, happened, by the way, with CRISPR, right? In the same yeah, way. Right? Yeah. When CRISPR comes out, you, you immediately have people recognize the danger of what can be done through this type of genetic editing. You have a group of people that say, maybe we should take a second and catch our breath. And, and try to evaluate the, the dangers of what it is that we're developing here and just hold off, particularly on germ level changes. We don't right. want to do things that are going to change it, uh, that can be heritable traits. And while they're they're all sitting around saying, let's not do this, it's done. And then, right. it, 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 yeah, obviously the gentleman in China who, who did the work on HIV and trying to make it so you had heritable traits of people who could no longer contract HIV, he ended up being punished for it jail. He lost his ability to work in that area for the rest of his life. Uh, he was sanctioned by the Chinese government, but it just went to demonstrate what you were just saying. You yeah. can, everybody can get together and say that there's a problem here and we need to slow down, but that can't, it won't happen because everybody's right. going to keep pursuing because they know to slow down right now because there's a convert intellectual convergence on these ideas is amazing. I mean, people like to think of these, these single geniuses out there that are creating things and, and really there's a race to get to the finish line from multiple people usually when we talk about these things. The problem and that I the, see- And what the finish line is in most cases, not every, but in yeah. most cases is the dollar. Yes. Follow the money. Yes. I mean, um, Microsoft gave $10 billion uh, to uh, uh, purchase the rights to uh, chat GPT kinds of technologies, $10 yeah. billion. Um, because right now it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, it's, it's the wild west, you know, everybody's out there prospecting to see if they can be the people who make the, the most money out of, uh, artificial intelligence. Um, sometimes for good uses, sometimes they could care less about the use. They just want to be the first one there who can, who can capture the most, uh, amount of capital. Um, and, um, uh, yeah, I mean, we're, they're going to keep doing it as long as they think there's there's a fortune at the end of the rainbow. Yeah, and Elon Musk, who you mentioned, says, Elon says, he said, in one sense, he's worried about what's going to happen and he thinks it needs to be a moratorium. But I've also heard him say in public speeches or in interviews that the reward for being able to, if, if, if it could be controlled and if it could be beneficial to human beings, let's say all of that was controllable and we could do that, the reward for AI is that the the understanding of the global economy will change. There'd be no limits on what we could actually produce resources wise. And the financial constraints that you see on what we could produce now would just melt away. The amount of money that could come from doing this successfully is, is incalculable. We're not even capable of understanding what it would ultimately do to right. a global economy. So right. you have a guy who knows this is dangerous, but at the same time he recognizes if it could work, the amount of money we're talking about is something we can't even fathom. Right, right. Well, let's not make paper clips. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, um, let's go. Let's go to, to um, transhumanism just briefly, yes. if you don't mind. 
Oh no, no, I'd love it. So, so this this follows on because uh, transhumanism is a kind of optimism about the use of technology to um, extend uh, human life uh, through a, a number of different uh, technologies um, to extend human life, uh, so that we can we are transitional humans on our way to being something post-human. Yes. Uh, so Nick Bostrom and uh, Julian Savulescu and others in, in Oxford and other places around the, the world are um, uh, part of a, uh, it's not just a philosophical movement, um, it's, it's, it's a technological movement as well uh, to use either genetics um, or computer technology uh, uh, or other or other technologies to uh, extend human lifespan indefinitely, uh, or um, realizing the limitations of this carbon-based body, um, uh, upload our consciousness yes. uh, into a vast neural network like um, the internet. Um, so to escape the limitations of our embodiment. Uh, because in in um, transhumanist terms, uh, all those limitations, limitations of intellect, which is a feature of our brains, uh, intellectual uh, uh, limitations of um, age uh, and um, muscle mass uh, and uh, the, the regular senescence of our cells, etc. Mm. Uh, all of that, uh, all those limitations are um, something we ought to. Uh, try to um, ameliorate or totally eradicate, uh, totally remove all those limitations because they're all viewed as bad. Our embodiment is bad, and that's one of the one of the features I I think um, that we miss sometimes in uh, thinking about um, our embodied condition is there's a tent there's a temptation of self loathing. Um, mm. Oh, I can't you know when I. When I get older, I can't do the things that I that I used to do. I can't. You mentioned I can't. I, I probably ought not be driving now, um, uh, and that's a limitation. It's a limitation of age, and if we live long enough, we're all going to get to the place where we shouldn't be driving. Um, uh, but but we have become addicted to our technology uh, and its its ability to get us wherever we want to when we want to. Uh, we don't have to wait on the, the Uber driver. We don't have to wait on the train uh, to meet its schedule. Uh, we can do that um, as we wish, when we wish. Uh, so we, our technology then reminds us um, of our limitations uh, and, and, we, and we rebel against uh, those limitations rather than saying, you know, that's what it means to be human. Yes. And just as there were limitations that I had when I was born, uh, there were certain things I couldn't do. Um, I couldn't write an essay. Um, I couldn't um, carry on a conversation, didn't know language uh, uh, skills, didn't have language skills, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we, didn't, we don't say those limitations are bad. We say that's what it means to be at that stage of life. Uh, yeah. You're a growing human being, developing um, your skills and, and, and abilities. Um, and... Uh, at the other end of life, and this is this goes back to our questions about assisted suicide and euthanasia. At the other end of life, rather than accepting those limitations and and working in communities to address uh, ways to help people live successfully uh, with those limitations, uh, we decide it's a bad thing 
and that if we can't end our own life or don't want to end our own life, um, then we're going to have to find a way to cure to cure aging. Yeah. And the way you cure aging is to get out of this body because this body uh, is going to age. Um, uh, no matter how, I mean, even if even if we could ex- extend human lifespan, you know, to four hundred years, it, eventually you still die. Yes. Um, so, um, transhumanism offers us the promise of technologies to escape this mortal coil um, and uh, to live to have eternal life um, in a um, uh, a world in which our conscience think the Matrix. Yes. Um, the movie, The Matrix, uh, that our conscience, uh, consciousness, I should say, um, lives eternally without a body. Uh, or with the Matrix, we could have multiple bodies in multiple different platforms. Um, and uh, so this kind of this is this is the next stage of our technological evolution, if you will. Yeah, you know, uh, in, in the post-human. Like, Particularly if you talk like reading Ray Kurzweil, right? I'm, I, I have to say, I am astonished at his optimism that he believes that whatever would be uploaded would be him. And, and, and it's one of the things that I, I don't, I, I've never fully understood when I'm talking to the, the transhumanist or posthumanist that are thinking of the idea of uploading our consciousness and, and, and releasing it as a program uh, that will live forever. In what meaningful way do you believe that that's you? That exist. Right. I, I don't understand why. And, and Kurzweil, all his 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 argument. I think it does it in his book on the singularity, where he talks about every time we have got more information, we've refined ourselves and become more of what we are. So he sees the accumulation of intelligence and the ability to process as his way of finding out who Ray, possibly Ray Kurzweil genuinely is. Right. I mean, in yeah, the sense yeah. that it will ultimately make him what he is at the highest level of what he could be without the restraint like you say, of the mortal coil without the body embodiment slowing him down. And, and I just, I, I am stunned by that optimism. I was like, how can you possibly believe that what survives is you in any meaningful sense? Right, right. Well, I don't know. I don't know whether you've seen the documentary about him uh, called no. Transcendent Man, Transcendent Man. It's it's worth seeing, but it's pitiable in many ways because, for instance, he he believes exactly what you just said, Jay. He, he, is, he has... Um, collected and like a museum, all of his his late father's journals, musical instruments. He was a yeah. concert uh, uh, instrumentalist. Um, all of his tax data, er, all of the information about his his father, in hopes that one day he can put all that information together in a digital form, and out will come his father. Yeah. As if, as if we're just the accumulation of data. Yeah. Um, we're just, we're just um, as uh, one, um, uh, one uh, computer uh, developer said, one uh, inventor said, uh, we're just computers made of meat. meat you machines. just, yep. you just put put the data in, and you get, you know, you get Ray Kurzweil or you get his father, um, uh, and I think, I think. I mean, it's, it's philosophically and certainly theologically suspect, um, uh, and um, it's certainly um, uh, overly optimistic. I think about about uh, the way technology uh, is going to work, even even in twenty thirty five or twenty fifty, depending on uh, you know which yeah. timeline you're on. Um, I just I, I, and and as you as you alluded. Um, um, there's, there's, 
um, the idea that our consciousness lives outside of embodied humanity, um, I think is, is, um, a, um, I think it's a mistake and I, I yeah. don't think it, I don't think it's true. And it's um, the difficult thing of dealing with it. I did a talk for summit ministries where we talked about this. When we talked about when I was asked to come in and talk about transhumanism, post-human. And I was like, the hardest thing for, for wrestling from it, from our end, for, I would say as a Christian, for me, let's just let me get in what thing yep. I can speak yep. authority on for me is that the difficulty here is that I, I want to make the case that there are aspects of our humanity that are worth preserving that will be lost to this enterprise. The problem is that the people who've embraced this view see nothing about our humanity worth preserving. Their, their intention is to move beyond humanity to force evolution. It would be, I mean, the, the, the hubris and, and also at some point or another, probably reality, which they say that we may be the first being that has existed in the, in the timeline in which we're evaluating that can control the next stage of evolution. And so we don't have to wait for environmental pressures and genetics to work itself out. We're capable of making this next leap. And, and when you say, but there's no we that's going to be on the other end of that, you're not building a brave new world for you. You're going to create a new thing that exists in either in cooperation with us, either with us, but with no relationship with us or at our expense without us. Uh, but it's not us. You're, it's not human beings evolving into something else. It is the loss of humanity that you're talking right, about, right. the abandonment of humanity. Right, right. And and for the first time in history, the technologist has become the technology. Yes. That is, we become the, the object of our technological engineering in ways that we, we never have, have before, never been able to before. But let me go back to what you said about uh, just for you. No, you said you're a Christian. And if you're a Christ follower, then it seems to me that with, with all the Christians down the ages, we can say that embodiment matters because, yeah. because Jesus Christ came to us as an embodied human being in Christ, our yes. bodies became sacred, if you will. Um, uh, they were, they were because they were, were made in the image of God uh, as well. But, 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 um, uh, the embodiment of the second person of the Trinity sacralized human embodiment in ways mm. that, um, that, 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 um, are, are mysterious, but also, um, transformative in our, in our world and in our, and in our lives. So, um, yeah, it's not just you. It's, it's, it's about, um, 2000 years of, of, uh, Christian, uh, belief and practice. Um, yeah. So, um, so, so let me, let me move to the third thing, uh, we were talking about. Um, so here we have the technological optimism, uh, of AI, um, writ large in transhumanism, if you will. Um, but the self-loathing takes another turn yeah. in what is now, um, I guess the best label is Anthropocene anti-humanism. And I'm working from a couple sources now, but there's a new book by Adam Kirsch, who's a science journalist, a, 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 a uh, not a, he's not a scientist himself, but he's a journalist uh, called the revolt against humanity. Uh, sorry, the revolt against humanity, imagining a future without us. 
And what well, what he argues in this book, and what and and he's using other sources to make his argument. What he argues in the book is that we've already reached a, a point of no return in um, global warming and uh, the pollution of the environment. The Anthropocene um, is that period, that era of geological uh, history in which human beings uh, came to um, manipulate uh, the the ge- geography of the earth. Um, mm-hmm. It's about 1950 is when most people mark that period of time, just as there was the Pleistine, Pleos- yeah, Pleistine um, uh, past or the Paleocene past. Now there's the Anthropocene uh, um, uh, now and future. And we've reached a point of no return. The, the earth is eventually going because yeah. of our, our way of manipulating it, polluting it, corrupting it, etc. Um, it's, it's not going to get any better uh, unless, unless, and this is the anti-humanism part, um, unless human beings cease to exist. Um, yeah. And so now the self, self-loathing takes its final turn and the Anthropocene anti-humanism argument uh, uh, says that what we ought to do is engineer in um, uh, through um, uh, through genetic engineering or other or other means um, the end of humanity so that we can't reproduce and eventually yeah. uh, human beings will just go extinct and then the earth can return to its pristine um, condition uh, we we will not have uh, so uh, corrupted um, uh, uh, the planet that 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 it uh, will will cease to to exist once once we're gone. Um, he says in the book that um, that this is a sentence that the the death of humanity is a sentence we've justly passed on ourselves. Oh. Uh, so we ought to just go gently into that good night. To quote another uh, well known. Um, cultural source, uh, we ought to just go gently in that good night, stop reproducing, and the world will go back to um, its uh, pure beginning. Uh, and there, there are so many, um, so many things to say about that. I mean, it's, it, it is, again, a kind of a human uh, self-hatred. Um, it, there's a naivete about it. Um, I don't know whether um, Kirsch has walked in the woods or not, um, but there's death all over the place in the environment and it wasn't caused by human beings. There's animal predation. Uh, there is the decay of, of the, the um, leaves and so in the, in the compost of the soil, <clears throat> there's all kinds of, all kinds of death and destruction as, as Hume said, uh, and others have said that, you know, nature's red in tooth and claw. And the, the fact that human beings um, cease to exist will not, uh, return uh, uh, the earth to any pristine condition. Yeah. Um, it's it's still a pretty it's still a pretty brutish place. Uh, quite apart oh, from yeah. the ways in which we may have um, uh, dirtied our own nest, um, uh, it's it still um, is not is not quite as as um, utopian as um, uh, some scientists make it out to be. 
There's an interesting thing too. I've noticed. I don't know what what the the algorithm or the AI that runs Instagram seems to be hypersensitive to anything I look at for more than two seconds. And every once in a while, I may look at a reel or something, and then for the next few days, I get that same some some quality of that reel every five minutes coming across my feed if I look at it. And one day, I have no idea why, but I got on some animal video where it was a natural video, a naturalist video watching animals kill each other. I don't have yeah. the slightest idea why somebody posted that, and I have an idea why I lingered on it for too long. But then I get inundated with, with animals killing each other. The craziest thing about it to me was how many people in the comment section were furious with whoever was filming that, that they weren't stopping it from happening as if there was some moral problem happening. Are you guys unaware of how the natural world works? I mean, right. that it's just that brutal and awful. Where I know you've grown up watching Disney movies, and I was a big fan of them myself, but I never allowed myself to believe that, that was how they actually were. <laughs> They're not sitting around thinking about their future and hoping they can become a chef or whatever. They are trying to kill each other all the time. It's a survival game 100% of the time. And, and so it's fascinating to think of that. Time. And that antinatalist view that we talk about oftentimes has corrupted the younger generation in a weird way where they, they think they shouldn't have kids, that they're doing something right. morally wrong. They call people who have more than one kid breeders. Uh, they believe that they're doing something great for the world by just ceasing to exist. What a horrible, I had a conversation with a young man and I think it was Memphis and it was after one of my talks. And, and I, he had confronted me during a Q and A uh, about this idea of overpopulation. So he came up to me and, and he and I were chatting and I said, can I ask you a question? I said, who was it that convinced you that human beings were problems? I mean, that, that just the existence of humanity was a problem. Someone convinced you along the way that we are a problem that must be solved. And if you stop thinking of us that way and actually think of us as problem solvers, as people yeah. who, if we, when we work together, we can accomplish amazing things to the benefit of our fellow man. If, if the problem isn't the person standing next to you is a competition with you for resources, the problem is that we're not cooperating the way that we ought to, to address the issues that need to be addressed because we're blocked by so many other things, sometimes just petty jealousy, sometimes it's the, the greed, uh, whatever, fear of our neighbor, whatever it is, it's stopping us from being able to maximize the, the things that we can accomplish if we work together. I was like, young man, if you take nothing away from this conversation today, stop thinking of human beings as problems and start considering that we may be problem solvers that can deal with these issues more efficiently if we just stop thinking we we're something that needed to cease to exist. That is such a horrifying way to understand what it means to be a human being. Well, it is. I mean, and and the naivete is breathtaking. Um, uh, you know, um, yeah. we have uh, we have saved um, some species from extinction uh, through human efforts. We've saved them from extinction. We, you know, uh, I just my my namesake, my my youngest uh, nephew, just graduated from vet school. Um, he's giving his okay. life to care uh, for animals, many of whom uh, uh, have health needs that are not. Uh, a result of humanity. Uh, they're just part of what it means to be yeah. a dog or a cat or a horse or a bird. Um, and, and, um, and then as, as you're saying about uh, overpopulation, um, uh, that myth won't, doesn't want to seem to die. Um, yeah. We're not reproducing ourselves and at least in, in the U S uh, we're, we're not um, uh, perpetuating uh, uh, the humanity uh, and um uh, and and the ways in which we have addressed the problems associated with potential overpopulation um, uh, through 
water purification and food production, you know, um, we can go on and on and on, yeah. uh, just as you said, in the ways in which we've appropriately used technology to uh, help uh, humans flourish and animals flourish for that matter. Um, yeah, the naivete is breathtaking. And um, I'm glad you have an opportunity to help straighten folks out uh, along the way. And like you just said, the, the things that we've done, I mean, I just wrote an article for Christian Research Journal about uh, how we've used CRISPR to change the lives of people with sickle cell disease and the things that are capable of being done beyond that. I mean, certainly there's dangers and, and this is the same yeah. thing. It's interesting. I just heard a guy, yeah, I think it was Thursday, I was driving to Tampa with a couple of my family members and I was, I said, you guys can sleep. I'm going to be listening to AI podcasts all day. I know you don't care about that. And so as I'm driving down and listening to these, I, I just came across one that had to deal with uh, biotech as well. And he made this that kind of brought together what I've been studying, what we're talking about today when I was doing some of the CRISPR research. So the, the, the division between uh, biology and information is gone when you're starting mm. to talk about it because all information is now, all genetic information is now to be understood as bits and as code. Uh, and, and so the, the, the walls are breaking down. So when we're talking about super intelligence and we're talking about AI and we're talking about transhumanism and we're talking about the, the development of intelligence and the ability to understand information, this guy's making the point that even our biology, as far as ge genetics is now information and the ability to adjust that information is growing every day. So the, all distinctions are dropping and it's all going to fall into the purview of this ability to process massive amounts of information quickly and what that will ultimately do to humanity. Uh, and, and when you talk about this idea of hating humanity, right, of seeing us as, as a problem that needs to be eradicated as if whatever is left when it's over, is gonna, like you said, it's going to be the Garden of Eden and they're not, they're, you know, if, go study chimpanzees for a second. I'm, I'm just not terribly interested in vacating the world so that they can violently kill each other. I mean, it's, it's just not my goal in life to, right. to, to try to eliminate humanity so that animals can continue to treat each other horribly as well. It, it, we're a part of this world and it's so, it's so difficult. I, I'll, I'll, I'll end with this on this and then turn it back over to you. I was in Jackson Hole, Wyoming many, many years ago, a couple of de decades ago with my wife. And I was talking to this guy, we were discussing the reintroduction of wolves into uh, Wyoming areas, particularly Yellowstone and Teton, Grand Teton National Park. The introduction of wolves at the time was to help care for the elk population that had gotten out of control. And he and I were chatting about it. And I said, what, what is for you? I said, I know why. I, I, I have no problem with the reintroduction of wolves. I love wolves. I think it's a really cool. I want, and we did the wolf tracking thing when it happened to try to figure out where the pack was at any given moment. I said, but for you, I want to talk about from you, from your point of view. What is the goal of the reintroduction of wolves? And he said, well, we want to be able to talk about, or we want to be able to deal with the elk population in a way that is natural. I said, okay, so you're a naturalist, right? You're a materialistic naturalist. He was not a religious man, not a believer in God or theism or anything like that. So can you help me understand something? And he said, what? I said, you, you have scheduled hunts and ways of taking care of culling it back with human, but you want to, with human beings, but you want to do it naturally. And he said, yes. I said, in what way, in your worldview, are human beings existing outside of the natural order? Why, why do you see us as something unnatural? 
by your understanding of what humans. Now, listen, I I support the wolf thing. I think it's pretty cool. I like the project just because I like wolves, and I'm and I'm I'm behind you on this. But what I don't understand is why you, who understand everything from this this idea of materialistic naturalism, sees one thing as being unnatural within the materialistic naturalistic universe that you seem to love so much, and that's human human beings. Everything else is natural, and we're unnatural, and in some way a violation of this great nature. It's like I can't possibly grasp how you get to that distinction. And he had no answer. I mean, this was an academic yeah. naturalist that was working in that area. He said. I'm sorry, sir. I said, I honestly have no idea how I'm supposed to answer you. I see now, as you say that, I feel like I've made some mistakes as I'm processing things around me. Like, yet we're a part of the natural world, if that's the way you understand the world. We're a part of this world. We're a part of this ecosystem. We're a part of this community. We have a role to play. Uh, this, this fatalistic idea that we need to be wiped out is horrifying. And yeah. the level that has corrupted young people, even in ways that they don't fully understand, that they see having kids is bad and continuing the human communities is bad. And they want to, to minimize our impact on the world. Don't minimize our impact. Let's just make it more positive. We don't have to right. not have any impact. We can just make a good impact on the world around us. Yeah. And we have, yeah. um, you know, uh, we've, we've cured human diseases. We have uh, medications uh, that, that relieve uh, human suffering, et cetera, without yes. relieving the sufferer of life. Um, so there are, there are many things. So, so yeah, but I think this is, uh, this is a good place uh, to, to kind of uh, wrap things up because I think this is the logical outcome of the kind of materialistic naturalism you were talking about. We have, we have disenchanted the world. We have, mm. there's no mystery left. It's all just data. As you said, it's all just numbers. Um, we're just, we're just computers made of meat. Um, we're just the, we're just the next stage of the evolutionary cycle. And now, now we'll go on and, and evolve to an, a new species that has less impact on the world. As long as you got electricity, because I don't know how you, I don't know how you keep a post-human alive without a computer plugged into electricity, but that's a, we'll have to figure that out later. Um, uh, so, so, but it's, it's the, it's the, the result of, of, um, you know, a, a, a nearly a millennia now. Uh, millennium now of um, or 500 years anyway of um, reducing ourselves as as uh, imagers of God reducing ourselves to yes. just pieces of meat on the on the floor of the pristine environment um, and and so I think that's why your work um, is so important at merely human and the other places that that you work because because there's a, a mystery to be communicated about what it means to be human, uh, a beauty uh, that's to, yeah. to be communicated about what it means to be human. After all, God made us. Um, yes. He doesn't make he doesn't make junk, as they say. He's a he's an artist, and he made us, and he made the world um, as an artist would make it, with all of its diversity and all of its beauty, and even the things that we sometimes think are. Um, maybe less than beautiful, um, are here uh, to highlight, uh, if you will, um, uh, both our creatureliness and, and his, his um, uh, glory. So I think, you know, I, I think we're, we have to recover um, and rehabilitate a generation. Um, as you're doing in your work with students, and as I've tried to do in, in uh, university classrooms as well, um, we have to, to, to um, rehabilitate a generation uh, or two um, who will um, fall in love again uh, 
with our humanity. Um, not in a, not in a, uh, a narcissistic way, of course, but in a way that appreciates, uh, our embodiment, our limitations as good gifts from God, not as part of the curse. The, our embodiment is not, uh, is not an ex, uh, a result of the curse. Our limitations are not a result of the curse. Jesus had limitations in his humanity. Uh, he was the perfect God man. Yeah. Um, uh, our, our dependency on others and on God is not a part of the curse. Um, uh, our, our, our appreciation of and need for community is not a part of the curse. Those are good gifts from God. And we've got to recover that, um, if we're going to, um, if we're going to pass on, uh, a truly human future, uh, to generations to come. And there's something so, I mean, one of the things that I have over the last decade spent a lot of time thinking about and trying to find ways to articulate in presentations and writings or whatever, and it's, it's, it's something that's been personal to me, uh, and I'm not, I'm not just personal, but as I evaluate it, was the recognition of, is, as you get older, you start to obviously recognize that, like, my kid, I tell my kids, it's your time now, right? You're rising, I will diminish, that's the, that's the way this works. Uh, I... I, I stewarded you in your early years. You were never something that belonged to me. You were an individual, a unique individual, yeah. and God gave me the opportunity to steward you and to help hopefully put you in a position so that when, when the generation that preceded you starts to diminish in our impact on the world, yours grows, and you can take the message of love and grace and mercy to the world and be a representative of Jesus Christ. My time is ending, and yours is beginning. But but at the end, like, and I think this is so great because you can go back to the Hippocratic Oath as it originally existed, right? There was there was the generational and the Hippocratic Oath. There was generational recognition. There right. was the recognition of he who taught me this, and that I owe that person, the person that set the stage for me to be able to do the things that I do, a lifetime of gratitude that will express itself as treating them as important in my life, and that I will take care of them with the things that I have. And I will take what they gave me and I will give it to the generation that follows me faithfully so that what they gave me doesn't end with me, but goes to the next generation. And that line goes all the way through the Bible as well, right? right. We have a responsibility to the people who came before us because they were the one. And the, the Bible is so powerful in its generational messages and yep. our, in our, in our need to remember what the generation for us did before we got here and our need to pass on the things that are most important to those that are coming after us. And I think when I was an atheist, I saw the brevity of life as something that made life meaningless. You know, when I was an atheist, it was like, I will be here as a carbon blip on a tiny little rock and I will exist for this tiny little section in the unit. And it's all meaningless and with no purpose. And then after I came to know Christ and got in this relationship, the idea that human beings mattered in the, in the, when I hear atheists tell me the universe is so huge, Jay, how can you believe it matters? Like, I don't understand it either, but he tells me I do. And I see it in my life all the time. And that is the miracle for me. And that he cares about us as individuals when everything is so immense and powerful and huge and beyond and beyond me. And so all of a sudden this, the brevity of my life became something that instead of communicating meaninglessness to me, it communicated importance to every moment that we have. Which yeah. is impossible, like Dostoevsky said, after after what he went through with this trial and ultimately being able to survive uh, his execution, he said it's impossible to live life appreciating every moment like that. But yeah. but it is a reality that you have to, to be aware of, that every single moment that you live is something that is a gift and should be impregnated with that purpose 
of other human beings in it. So God said, love him and love others. So that that's the entire motivation for talking about all this. What you just said, I think, is so vitally important and, and beautiful. I love the word beautiful. It's beautiful to think that we have to fall in love, regain our love for what it means to be a human being, to, to stop seeing only the negative and to re-embrace this idea that God made something good. The curse corrupted elements of it, but there are elements of it that were made and purposed for his good. And it's all tied up into other human beings. It's not yeah. our glory. It's not the things that we pursue. It's the people that God puts us in front of on a daily basis uh, that, that ultimately give us that joy. I'm going to give you the last word here. Uh, the last word's easy. I just thought of it as you're talking. Um, there's a wonderful Yiddish toast, L'chaim, mm. to life. So, L'chaim. L'chaim. <laughs> yep, and JD's toasting as well. All right, Ben, thank you so much for coming on. You are thank welcome. You. If you ever have three things that you want to bounce around with me, just reach out, and I may chase you down again at some time in the future to talk about physician-assisted suicide. Okay. Uh, but... Uh, God bless you, sir, and all that you do, and you are appreciated. Well, thanks. Likewise, and uh, have a great day. And uh, this was a, a great opportunity for me and uh, just to, to chat with you, Jay. So thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Bye now. Bye now. For listening, thank you for watching. Thank you for being a part of the Human Things Podcast 2.0, Season 2, Episode 2, with Dr. Ben Mitchell talking about AI. More to come. This season, if you have enjoyed the content that we're creating, and if you are looking forward to that content coming, please subscribe, go to our website, be willing to offer financial support, uh, Do and we will continue to produce this. We are committed to this, and we are having a good time. And I did get some feedback from somebody that said they wanted me to make a t-shirt for the people that I said, shut up and give me your money to uh, at the end of, I think that was season one. Uh, so I don't think we're going to do that and I'm not going to make that refrain every time, but I will say, I don't know. I don't know who you were that gave anonymous gifts. I'm, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the anonymous. We got a couple of really nice anonymous gifts, but if it, if it came because I said, shut up and listen or shut up and give us money, uh, you know, that that's awesome too. In all seriousness, we have already received support. And, and we, we, we appreciate every bit of it. And we're going to make every effort with the gifts that you've given us to produce material that will be useful to people. And we are going to mine the old episodes and bring some more stuff out for you. And I'm running down relentlessly guests of a high quality, hopefully to bring to you on future episodes as well right now. But I can promise you this, the next episode, as far as I know, will be Jay Watts alone again on purpose. It isn't just because I couldn't get anybody. It's on purpose. I have stuff to say and we'll, we'll, we'll cover it then. Thank you for joining us again. Subscribe, support, God bless.